You're with Julian on the Brown Note and a review of the latest David Fincher movie, Mank. Uh, one of the last reviews of the year, as next week I'll be doing my roundup of my top and worst, best and worst films of the year. Now, David Finch is one of the most preeminent directors in America. He's, he's been a bit up and down for me. Um, I saw Alien 3 recently and I was very surprised by how bad it was. He has completely disowned that film, his debut, and it wasn't his fault anyway. It was destroyed before it even got near him. Um, but he went on a run of very interesting films that posited him as a uh, vanguard of the, the zeitgeist. It was amazing. Seven, obviously. The game was a bit of a misfire, but such an interesting film. And the pinnacle came with Fight Club. In a way, for me, he dropped off after that. And he's never sort of been at that level again. Fight Club's one of my favourite films of all time. Panic Ring was just a non-entity of a film. It was like he just did a Hollywood project. And this kind of put uh, Fincher in the mould of he's as good as the project he gets given or he chooses. And sometimes they're amazing and sometimes they're just perfunctory. And that was perfunctory. Zodiac was really interesting, bit overrated by fans now. Curious Case of Benjamin Button was him going for an Oscar and I think it's his worst film. I think it's terrible. I struggle to watch it. He came back again with uh, one of the best films of the last decade, The Social Network, which was absolutely incredible. And then he went and did a remake of a film I didn't like anyway, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And it was identical to the original foreign version. And I didn't like either. I thought it was very, very perfunctory. Another studio-led film by numbers, really. And Gone Girl comes back with uh, much better material, the book Gone Girl. And that was a brilliant film. I absolutely loved that. Well, he's come back now after a six-year break with Mank. And it's a very, very filmic world. We say that the Oscars, Hollywood loves to reward films about films, about filmmakers and everything like that. It's catnip to them. So it would seem to be the biggest Oscar bait this side of Hillbilly Elegy, which I gave a zero to last week. Um, but in a very different way because this is a much more art house take. This isn't, uh, you know, sort of lavish Great Gatsby land. It's a much more personal and art house film. The screenplay was written by his father, uh, who passed away, Jack Fincher, back in 2003, and he wanted to make it after the game. Didn't have the clout to do so, but he does now, and he's because he wanted to film it in black and white for a start. Uh, so he has done so now, and it is a very unusual story in that it takes on the making of Citizen Kane, um, the Orson Welles classic from around 1940, which uh, has often been regarded as the greatest film ever made uh, and celebrated as such. I don't think it is quite there. I think that technically uh, everything about it is amazing, but it doesn't quite have a soul. To me, something like Casablanca is so much more human or Vertigo is so much more psychologically interesting. But obviously a masterpiece, an obvious 10 out of 10 film, you can't really knock it for anything. It just doesn't have that human element for me. But the making of it, where Orson Welles was this wonder kid that came to Hollywood and never quite lived up to the promise of Citizen Kane since. This takes a very interesting route, which is focusing on the writer who is regarded more than anyone else in Hollywood as defining that era, the golden era of the 1930s and 40s of very witty scripts, pithy responses, very, very sort of um, sharp back and forth banter. That's from him, Herman Mankiewicz, played by um, 
Gary Oldman here in one of the best roles I've seen him in, to be honest. It's a fantastic character to play. And it shows him bedridden after an accident in an automobile, being given 60 days to write the screenplay for Citizen Kane, which would go on to win both him and Orson Welles an Oscar, the only Oscar that Citizen Kane won out of about 14 nominations. And famously, it was about the newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst and his mistress, and they tried to block the film at every stage from being released. What we get is him referring back to his life throughout the 1930s, him becoming friends with William Randolph Hearst and his mistress played here in, I think, uh, an Oscar nomination, definite for me. Uh, Amanda Seyfried is magnificent. She's never been better as Marion Davis, who was a very interesting character, a very intelligent woman who was rubbished by the film Citizen Kane as being uh, a laughingstock, which is a big bone of contention because she wasn't like that in real life. And according to this film, she was a really close friend of Herman Mankiewicz who had a lot of respect for her, so he kind of did the dirty on her here. William Randolph Hearst himself had been a very socialist-leaning guy, but in his later years, he turned to being an arch-republican and very conservative and pretty much used his newspaper empire to take down a man called Upton Sinclair, who we don't know enough about these days. I love the fact that that's in this film. He was a full-blown socialist, and ever since America has regarded socialism as a dirty word, he nearly got governor of California, and William Randolph Hearst and the Hollywood system did their best to ensure that he didn't by producing populist newsreels, using actors, sometimes attacking him. Now, this is the bedrock of the film. It follows Herman Mankiewicz at the end of his career, never uh, wrote another prominent screenplay after this film, doing the dirty on some of the most powerful people and some of his friends and things that affected his family by writing the screenplay to Citizen Kane. Now, if that sounds like your best night in, you are going to love this film. If it sounds like a load of pretentious twaddle, you're going to hate it. This is a film that doesn't have much of a soul. Uh, it is all based, perhaps fittingly, around an incredible script, an amazingly witty script uh, that showcases Gary Oldman's wit as a character, Herman Mankiewicz, so well, um, and the interactions with other people, particularly Amanda Seyfried, but also Lily Collins as uh, the kind of secretary to Herman Mankiewicz who's typing out the screenplay. And a whole cast of Hollywood heavyweights are portrayed. Louis B. Mayer, Joseph L. Mankiewicz's brother, Irving Salberg, one of the most important producers in Hollywood history. Tom Burke shows up as Orson Welles doing a very good job. And Charles Dance, an actor I've got so much time for, he was in that Alien 3, a brilliant characterization in that film, as William Randolph Hearst. The acting is off the charts here. If there is a downside to this movie, it doesn't have a soul so much. It is a lot of very clever people speaking very clever towards each other. Now, that could be a problem for a lot of people watching this movie who might just find it pretentious. Uh, it's shot in uh, black and white uh, quite beautifully. Eric Messerschmidt, funnily enough, is the guy who shot it. Um, I think it looks beautiful, but if there's one thing I'd like to change there is that I, I, I think a lot of the black and white tones in it are too pure. They look new, fresh as a daisy. I'd like it to look a little bit more worn. Uh, the production design on it is endlessly redolent of the 30s. It is spot on and uh, it's just, it's a dazzling world. It's so evocatively portrayed in this film. 
Um, I found the spectre in the background of the right-wing media attacking socialists and destroying them and painting them out to be communists and using their media weight to turn the public against them and them actually being very popular with the public and only losing by small margins not that big a margin he lost by in the end even with all these people attacking him um, I found that to be very connected to the modern day and you could certainly say Upton Sinclair the guy that wrote the book Oil that was turned into the film No Country for Old Men and whose book Jungle Land I think pretty much changed, la changed labour laws in America. He was an amazing man. I think obviously Bernie Sanders comes to mind today uh, about how the powerful get together and they will try and stop people like him ever getting into positions of power. Um, the other thing that's major in this film is how William Randolph Hearst himself was this kind of socialist and failed to get into government and turned on these kind of people and turned on Upton Sinclair and in the pivotal scene Gary Oldman goes to a dinner and has this scene that apparently took a hundred takes to do where he drunkenly and vomits on his shoes he's so drunk it tells a whole story about how William Randolph Hearst was this socialist guy and how he is now held up Upton Sinclair to a mirror and He's destroyed both Upton Sinclair and himself because he's now turned into this right-wing pro-big business guy. Um, and it's the best moment in the film. It's an incredible moment, followed by Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst, giving him the parable of the organ grinder's money monkey. That's possibly something that will tip the film over to Oscar winning. I think it will get nominated across the board. The acting throughout is magnificent, particularly the two women. Uh, Lily Collins and Amanda Seyfried are magnificent. They're probably the two main characters after Gary Oldman. I haven't seen Gary Oldman be this good in a film for years. He relishes the part. He relishes the dialogue, which is so clever all the time. But if this film doesn't have a human soul, it's got a great deal of political depth. And I felt that that whole scenario was hugely interesting um, the way that America lambasted and demonized socialism at the expense of the working man and going through the De Great Depression as well uh, and the way that right-wing media continues to do so to this day, even in our own country in Australia, they do it, did it to Bill Shorten. They'll get on board any time they can. Um, I, th I found it a rich, uh, slightly too long, perhaps, experience, but then the back third is really, really good. Uh, it's the middle where it kind of drifts off a little bit. Um, like I said, if everything I've described it to be so far is something that you find fascinating, you'll love it. And I loved it. Um, if you think that it is um, lacking a human element, you probably won't. And you'll probably find the whip-crack dialogue back and forth being the, the, you know, the centerpiece of the film to be a tad annoying. Uh, if you find people that are so clever and in love with how clever they are to be annoying, it probably will annoy you. But I <laughs> am in love with how clever I am, I guess. I didn't think about that bit. But I found it fascinating. A historical document, uh, perfectly mounted and made by David Fincher. And it's great to see him going off into weird areas like this where it's such a, an obtuse story, yet it has so much relevance to the modern day. So I'm going to give Mank a 9 out of 10, only the second film this year I've given that to. I don't know if it will be, I don't think it won't be my number one film of the year, I don't think. 
But there were so many things that elevated it above the fact that it is just soulless, clever people talking over the top of each other. The fact that it does detail this world that is so relevant to today in, in the way that we treat left-wing politics and the media does in particular and how vicious they can be and how they use populism to make working-class people turn on themselves. So, Mank, 9 out of 10 for me.